were listening to Kevin Smet's performance of When It's Sleepy Time Down South, an American jazz standard from the 1930s written by Clarence Muse, Leon René, and Otis René for a stage production. It was originally recorded by Mildred Bailey, backed by Paul Whiteman's orchestra. However, it's best known by Louis Armstrong's recording. Kevin is a 35-year-old guitarist from the beautiful town of Los Gatos, California, located just 17 miles southwest of San Jose. The guitar style that he plays is known as Gypsy Jazz, a genre created in the 1930s by Belgian-born Gypsy guitarist Django Reinhardt. Still popular today amongst vintage jazz aficionados, Gypsy Jazz ensembles traditionally consist of a double bass, three guitars, and a violin. Kevin Smith is the director of a gypsy jazz ensemble in Los Gatos called the Skyline Hot Club. This ensemble has made modifications to the original orchestration of Django Reinhardt's gypsy jazz ensemble, which consisted of two guitars. Also, the violinist has been replaced by a musician who alternates between clarinet and saxophone. The band members are highly talented musicians. Kevin's musicianship and his direction create beautiful sounds that for many of us only exist as vintage recordings like distant cultural memories. Kevin also plays different varieties of jazz guitar styles incorporating Brazilian jazz guitar and American jazz standards. I invite you to join me in learning about Gypsy Jazz, Django Reinhardt, and the life and inspiration behind Kevin Smet's music. My name is Napoleon, and this is Cultural Q, the point of convergence of art, culture, and society. Welcome, Kevin. Welcome to The Cultural Cue. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show today to talk about the beautiful, wonderful, beautiful gift that you have, which is a gift of, of music and notably the guitar. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about, about your instrument, your guitar. I do play kind of a specific type of acoustic guitar. It's called a petite bouche. It's like a French style of guitar that was designed in the late 20s, early 30s by the Selmer McAfee Company. And it was most famously played by Django Reinhardt. It's basically an acoustic guitar that combines elements of nylon string guitars and arch top guitars. And the, the purpose was essentially to build a guitar that projects loud enough to be heard in an acoustic setting. So in comparison to like a normal flat top guitar, like a Martin or a Taylor or something like that, these guitars are significantly louder and really, really live. They respond to pretty much everything that you do. So it demands a much higher level of technical facility and control over all of the nuances of your playing in order to get it to, to sound good. 
So it was a real humbling experience moving from being an arch top player for a long time to just play normal American jazz guitar like Wes Montgomery or Jim Hall to moving to this and and being like, this is a completely different beast. <laughs> Now, petite bouche in French means little mouth. Is there a reason why this guitar is called petite bouche? Well, there is... A couple of different designs of what we've come to call gypsy guitars or swing guitars. There's a big mouth, the grand bouche, and then the petite bouche. The grand bouche, we oftentimes just call a D-hole, which is a much wider design. And the petite bouche is, it has a slightly different bracing system on the back of the top of the guitar. So that necessitates having a much smaller sound hole. Um, the two designs, they're both exceptionally loud but one of them is the 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 d hole is has sort of a warmer sound the oval hole the petite bouche is, is very focused and really punchy well so when we talk about bouche or mouth it's it's referring to the sound hole the hole that the guitar has is that correct yeah exactly when did you start to learn guitar where does this this desire to play guitar come from i was kind of a late bloomer you know most of my contemporaries They've been playing guitar since they were in late elementary school or something like that. I didn't start until 2003, so I was like a junior in high school. <laughs> And the first year that I was playing guitar, I tried to play standard right-handed guitar, but I've been pretty heavily left-handed my entire life. So after about 10 months of really unsuccessfully trying to learn to play, right-handed i just got frustrated one day flipped it over and started playing backwards and after about 10 hours of practicing that way i was playing better than i had had almost in almost a year can you think of a time when you were a child were you ever drawn to music as a child or did this all of a sudden just did it happen overnight in in high school i'm not a member of a musical family i am a member of a pretty heavily artistic family there's lots of visual art in my family I did do a lot of drawing as a as a kid, but music didn't really pique my interest until until I was like a sophomore in high school and my mom was dating this guy that played the guitar, so it was the first time that I really was exposed to it a lot right in front of me. And so it became it became an interest pretty quickly. I would just sit and listen to him play. Wow, this is a, probably a, the first time I hear a musician that says that he or she wasn't interested in, until high school. I think it's very interesting. Well, so, you know, I, I've, I've oftentimes sort of lamented, you know, not getting into it earlier, but I kind of let that go about five years ago. I was on a little hike with one of my teachers and I kind of you know, professed like, gosh, I wish I had started earlier. And he was like, you know what? He said, it's okay. Like we all come to it when we're ready. And, and he, and he basically said, you're never going to know if, if someone had put the guitar in your hands when you were like seven, if you would have had any interest in it at all. So whatever time that you started playing, that was the right time for you. I've heard of people who were forced, they say, to take music lessons as children and they hate it as adults. That's kind of like one of the things with teaching. There's the balance between showing them the things that they need to know to get better and to actually end up enjoying it more. But then you also have to 
find what sparks their interest and find find what makes them what makes them want to go and do the practice that you assign them. What was Kevin like as a teenager? Were you very outgoing? Where did you play sports? Were you kind of an introvert? <laughs> I've I've always been pretty pretty introverted. I was really interested in skateboarding when I was a kid, so I spent a lot of time at skate parks. Uh, jumping, j- jumping people's fences and skating their empty pools. The the repetition r- required to play music well, I think, was something that I learned as a teenager with that discipline. And it's the same with music. Oftentimes, with students, I'll I'll see them get it right once, and and then and then I'm like, okay, that's that's cool that you got it once, but you got to go back and do it until you can just do it every time in your sleep, because that's when you've that's when you've integrated whatever the concept is. Do you feel like music can probably be something that appeals to to more introverted teenagers? I remember the first time that I, I picked up a guitar was. Like when my my mom and her and her boyfriend at the time were like out of the house and I was all alone and I like I went and picked it up and I and I just remember the first time that I got a clean sound out of it it was like tunnel vision it's kind of never really stopped I practiced a lot right handed completely unsuccessfully for almost a year the drive to just be able to do something in complete solitude for hours and hours and hours is something that's relatable to most introverts, I think. But playing music is also is also social. So while it does appeal to me being fundamentally introverted, and while I do like playing solo guitar, there is something entirely different and entirely special about playing in an ensemble. It has actually helped me become more socially well-adjusted and and more extroverted and maybe more balanced. How did your family feel about you wanting to learn music? I think that there was there was support, but sort of tentative support. Like we want you to do what you want to do, but this is this is a pretty hard path. So I don't think that I got a whole lot of real outward support from my family until they truly saw that it could be an income source. How do they feel about it now? Do you have any idea how they feel about it now? They seem to love it. They seem to love that I've got such a hard and fast direction. I've never, I've never really strayed from it at all. I basically almost never skip a day on the guitar. I would say that since I started playing the guitar, I've probably only maybe missed 50 days in almost 18 years of playing the guitar. It's very much something that I make time for. Only at the busiest of times do I ever skip a day completely. Well, I do have to congratulate you because you are an extremely talented and skilled musician. You really do have a beautiful gift. Uh, Thank you, man. You know, people, people like to use the word talent a lot. I would say that the more accurate adjectives are focused and driven. One of my heroes is Bill Evans. And there was this interview that he did with his brother where his brother talked about his talent and Bill actually kind of cut him off and was like, I disagree with that. I 
do not think that I am a quote unquote talented um, pianist. He said, in fact, I think that I'm a very slow learner. But the difference between me and other people is that I absorb information 100% before I move on to the next thing. Tenacity. I like that. If you want to be an expert at anything, it takes tenacity and, and hard work. I hope any listener can interpret that as the guitar is not inaccessible for you. I mean, if you love it, if you want it, you can achieve it. All it requires is hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. I'd like to move forward mm-hmm. a little bit and talk about talk about your music. Before we jump into that, maybe if you wouldn't mind playing something for us live to just kind of show us what you you like, your style, and then we can just jump right in. How does that sound? Yeah, sure. <laughs> just the first few measures of a tune written by Django's son, Babik. We keep mentioning the name Django, and I don't know if as many people know about it. Uh, I know I know for a fact you, you talk about Django, and I talk about Django. And uh, mm-hmm. it's worth noting that Django, Django Reinhardt was a Belgian-born musician, mm-hmm. born into a gypsy family. And I think that's where the term mm-hmm. gypsy jazz comes from. He had a quintet, the Quintet uh, du Haut Club de France, uh, with famous violinist Stéphane Grappelli. And I have a little, a little clip that I'd like to share. Uh, maybe we can mm-hmm. listen to it together. And mm-hmm. that way our listeners can understand where we're coming from. So that was a clip of Django, and we hear the guitar. It's a little has a little solo. Could we say that um, Django and his his style is gypsy, gypsy jazz style? It would be one of your bigger influences. I would say maybe Django is more of an influence on me than gypsy jazz. Django was the first jazz guitar player that I ever heard, and I think I heard I heard him for the first time when I was like nineteen or twenty. 
Not only is he highly influential to me, but I would actually argue that Django is is possibly the most influential guitar player. We spoke earlier, and you also mentioned that you have two other influences, or I guess one other main main influence, which is, which is Brazilian music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about Choro, and mm-hmm. Choro is from Brazil, from the from the region of Rio de Janeiro, from the mm-hmm. late 19th century and early 20th century. One of its, mm-hmm. its main figures is Pichinguinha. So before we move forward, I have a little clip of a beautiful, probably my favorite Choro song, which is uh, Carinhoso. Uh, let's give it a go and, and, and see what it sounds like. Another of the of the influences that you mentioned was bossa nova, bossa mm-hmm. nova. It's also from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, from the mid twentieth mm-hmm. century by composer Tom Jobim, the famous Tom Jobim. So let's take mm-hmm. a look at this song called Wave. According to what we talked about earlier, these are your two main influences. You have of Django with um, with his style, and then we have these two two types of Brazilian Brazilian music. I would say I would still say that I'm still probably more influenced by like American jazz and and Django than I am by Choro or or Bossa. But I I have always had a deep affinity for for particularly Bossa and then more recently Choro. And just because I've found that I, I really like both of those styles so much. With my my band, Skyline Hot Club, we have kind of made it sort of one of our directions that we want to take the band is doing arrangements of Shoro and Bossa tunes by Jobim, but making them work for the instrumentation of our band, which is two of those swing or gypsy guitars upright bass and clarinet. I think it's very interesting. Now we're talking about a fusion of Django, this French type of, of Django jazz and Brazilian music. Even within the Brazilian genres, both Choro and Bossa Nova are a little different. They're not quite the same, um, although they do have that nice Latin feel to them. Do you and your band, do you have any songs that 
fuse both of these styles or both of these genres? That fuse those all of those styles together? No, not not really. I do have I've written a couple of pieces that are the harmony is very much bossa in nature, but the the rhythms that we use are what we call the the gypsy bossa, which if I'm being honest, it doesn't really have anything to do with with bossa nova. It's just a term. But the the harmony that I use for that I use for the tune is 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 very much so sounds like a, a Jobim tune to me. And then we we've got arrangements that we've written of Jobim tunes or typical Doro tunes. So we do play we do play that tune that that we just listened to a moment ago. We play a lot of the Jobim tunes a lot. Like I really love playing Louisa, which to me sounds like it could have just been written by Django. It's like <laughs> to to me it it sounds like a perfect like a perfect tune to to merge those two styles of music. Then we also play How Insensitive a lot. And because none of us are have come up in that that particular pedagogy, like either playing traditional shoro or playing or playing traditional bassa, we just use rhythmic concepts and rhythmic styles that are familiar to us, but play those songs with the with the stylings that that we're comfortable with. And one of the things that I remember us talking about earlier before we started was that a good melody is malleable. A good melody, you can you can do it a lot of different ways and and it still works. And that's that's what I think is cool about these Shoro tunes and and the Bossa tunes is that Oftentimes when my band gets together and we, we play these tunes, oftentimes we'll experiment with a couple of different ways of doing it before we settle on being like, ooh, this one really works. Interesting. Maybe we can share one of your clips with your band of maybe Insensatech and uh, see how th that concept plays out of having familiar rhythms with maybe a Brazilian tune. Mm -hmm. Sure. Shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about 
music as a profession. Are you a full-time professional musician? Well, I live, I live in, in Los Gatos, California, and that's, that's a pretty extraordinarily expensive place to live. So I have always had to supplement my income. I'm not like a huge fan of teaching, as I mentioned earlier. So I don't have that many students. I, it's just not something that I've really, that I've really, that I've really pushed in my life all that much. So I actually have a, like a management position at a, a small cafe on the other side of uh, town from where I live. And uh, oddly enough, I have that gig because of a music gig the restaurant of which my, my cafe is a subsidiary is called Diodeca. And I, for seven, almost eight years was their sole music vendor. And when they decided that they wanted to open up a small cafe across the street from their main restaurant, they knew that I had a lot of like coffee house experience. So they asked me if I wanted to essentially run the business for them. And I, and I agreed. So it's one of the few times that I, that I can think of where, where a music gig became a day job gig. <laughs> the changes that the, the, the pandemic has brought are really unprecedented. We're changing the way we completely live, think, eat, dress, everything. How has the pandemic changed you and your craft? Well, I, you know, I notice, I notice that there's, there seems to be a lot of people around me who they've been pretty much silent, like not, not seeming to produce very much music anymore. Or a couple of people have all essentially all but all but quit altogether, which breaks my heart. But like, personally, I think that for those who this is really like a part of who they are. I think that this has been a great opportunity to reevaluate your, your relationship with music and reevaluate your, your relationship with, with your instrument. And for me, it's made me realize that even though income as a musician has essentially been eliminated societally altogether, I'm still going to practice and get better and continue to use the practice of music as an analogy for self-improvement in life many, many hours a day. So, you know, I'm fortunate enough that, that my, my day job doesn't demand like an exorbitant amount of hours per week. So, I still get to practice like four to six hours a day. My band members live fairly close. So we still hold rehearsals at least once a week. And we often do live streams together. And yeah, I just, I, I think that those of us who this is truly a calling, it's done, it's done really nothing other than strengthen your relationship with music rather than distance yourself from it. Moving forward, do you have any gigs planned in the near future or does your, do you and your band have any plans for moving forward uh, with 
or without the pandemic? Well, I think that there's, given the fact that I live in a pretty, in a pretty affluent area, we've still had some, some gigs doing private parties in people's backyards and stuff like that. So, so there's still been some work. It doesn't pay as much as it used to, but it's still, it's nice to have a little bit of money in the coffers. Right now, our bass player is sort of trying to get us some gigs doing essentially live stream performances for different types of old folks homes and stuff like that. Obviously, we can't go and play for them in person, but oftentimes you can do like a like a Zoom thing and have it project out onto a big screen so that the residents can can watch with like a nice sound system and still get like a modicum of the live music experience even though it's not in person. And that oftentimes so so far like we have a couple of those things coming up and some of those pay pretty well. We do do some occasional live stream concerts for venues that we used to play at. Those don't really pay all that much right now because to me, that's kind of like a labor of love trying to make sure that these venues will still exist when things really start to open back up. So to me, that's kind of like more of an active service than it is a money-making opportunity. And then this hasn't been a moneymaker, but when I, I think in, in May or June, the members of my band decided, you know what, nobody's played music with anybody else in a really long time. I think that we should share our continued gift of being able to play together by having, we had like an open jam session out in a park. <laughs> so as long as you play an acoustic instrument, you can come and play with us and blow off some steam and, and get some playing in out in nice wide open space. So, so we've been doing that as, as sort of like an active service as well to the, to the community. What a great way to give back and to open up your space, your music, your vulnerability to the, to the community. You did mention lessons. You do offer lessons. And are those lessons carried out via FaceTime, Skype, Zoom, Google Hangouts? What is your main video conferencing tool? I like doing Zoom because Zoom is compatible with the microphone that I like to use. It's a little glitchy when I use FaceTime or, or anything else. But I do have some students that, that like to use just FaceTime or, or Skype. But Zoom is the, pre the preferred. And for, for people who live in the Bay Area, I still do an occasional in-person lesson. And we'll, we'll just go to a park or something like that. Keep it in a wide open space. And I have no qualms with, with, doing, with doing that. Because the technology of being able to, to teach somebody remotely, as great as it is, there is so much nuance and so much specificity that will never come through a screen ever. So in-person lessons are still monumentally important. And if somebody's interested in, in lessons, whether it's uh, in-person or remote, what, what does this person need? I prefer to teach people on acoustic, but if you're an electric player, that's fine too. Lessons with me, like I, 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 I focus on the simple stuff. I think a lot of jazz education is let's talk about harmony and let's talk about let's talk about all this cool fancy stuff that you can do. 
But what I find often is that I'll want to introduce a new student to what we call like a Freddie Green chord style or like Django style La Pomp. And I'll get a little bit of resistance to it. And usually the way that I go about alleviating this resistance is being like, okay, I'm going to send you a video and your one assignment for the week is to match what I'm doing. And if you can play rhythm with me, then we can go on, we can go on and do something else because you can do it. But if you can't do it, then we have work to do because this is, this is supposed to be something that's quite simple just playing quarter notes and having them all sound dynamically even and getting all of the notes to sound even and beautiful and not create a bunch of extraneous noise with your guitar. Like all of these things take a really long time to do, even though it just sounds like you're just going chunk, 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 chunk. Putting all of those elements together takes a lot of practice. Like not being hyperbolic, I, I think that it, it really took me about two years to learn how to play La Pompe passably. I think that's all the questions that I have for today. I will make your YouTube channel available, your personal YouTube channel. And does your band, Skyline Hot Club, do they have a, either a YouTube channel or a Facebook page? We have a Facebook page and that's where we do most of our live streaming. We don't have a YouTube a YouTube channel yet, although I have plans to start building one for the band, but live streaming on YouTube won't be a possibility for a while because your following needs to be pretty big before you can live stream on YouTube. We're still trying to figure out what the what the plan moving forward for 2021 is for our live stream schedule. We used to live stream once a week. We did that for almost eight months and it, it got a little grueling. So we're scaling it back to twice a month and we're still trying to figure out with everybody's changing schedules exactly what day it's going to be. But once we figure it out, we're going to we're going to stick to it. So right now we're looking at doing every other Friday at two o'clock Pacific Standard Time. If anyone is interested in lessons, how can a person contact you? Easiest way would be my email, which is my full name, Kevin Smet, K-E-V-A-N-S-M-E-D-T, music at yahoo.com. That's the easiest way to reach me. Thank you. I'll, I'll make sure to have all that information below, a link to, to your contact information, uh, Kevin Smet, Skyline Hot Club, and your email address. It's been a real delight to talk to you and have you share with us your experiences with music and how music has shaped your life really. That's not an exaggeration. I've found through the process of practice that music, music is really music and, and really any life practice worth spending your life doing is analogous to life in every way. My teacher rock has said to me for a very, very long time, music is life and life is music. And I truly don't think that I really understood what that meant until maybe like last year, I noticed that a practice within your practice, practicing specific things is often analogous to something in life in the general sense, discipline. Uh, we, we talked about this before we started 
tuning your instrument. If you can't tune your primary instrument, which is your body, then you can't tune your instrument. You can't play your instrument very well. So I've noticed that the process of getting really into the specifics of practice and, and working on fundamentals has really inspired me to take better care of myself. And I think that that's a, that that's a, a, a great, a great thing that music can teach you to, to live a better life. The Romans used to have a saying, men sane in corpore sano, a healthy mind in a healthy body. And I mm -hmm. think that goes along with what you're saying just now. It's all interlinked. I think I said this when we were talking before too, that your level of physical fitness is directly related to your self-confidence which is going to be directly related to your musicianship. And then your level of your musicianship might affect your self-confidence, which might affect your eating habits, which will affect your body. So they're all totally, they're totally interlinked with each other. It's, it's all the same thing. I'm sure that that is analogous and applicable to any life practice, but of course it, in my life, it's, it's music. So. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's been a real, real delight talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Kevin Smet, a 35-year-old guitarist based in Los Gatos, California, who specializes in gypsy jazz. Kevin shared his musical trajectory, turning points, and milestones, along with a bit of the history behind gypsy jazz and its primary figure, Django Reinhardt. Kevin, just like many other musicians, has made changes to the way he makes music on account of the pandemic. In the description below, you will find a link to the Facebook profile for Kevin's music ensemble, Skyline Hot Club, an acoustic quartet based out of Los Gatos, California, dedicated to continuing the tradition of swing music in hot jazz popularized by Django Reinhardt. I invite you to follow the band as it periodically has live performances streamed on social media. I would like to also invite you to keep in touch with our show. We have many guests and interesting topics for the upcoming episodes. I leave you with Kevin Smith's Django-style rendition of the 1931 American jazz song, When It's Sleepy Time Down South. My name is Napoleon, and this has been Cultural Q, the point of convergence of art, culture, and society. <laughs>